Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I want to talk about why fiction matters, and I'm going to do that by talking also about why this podcast matters to me. And I'm going to do that before we get into this really amazing episode with Caitlin Doty and Mark O'Connell, uh, which is a live event here in Dublin that shows you all about why fiction matters. Um, and it does so very well because this is a podcast with two of my podcast guests, <laughs> uh, Caitlin, who's been on many times, and Mark, who was on episode 105. So um, the tour was huge. The U.S. book tour for Hawk Mountain and then the subsequent Dublin tour dates for Hawk Mountain, I mean, almost all the events were completely packed. And there were three things <laughs> that bothered me about the tour, so I guess I'll start with the negative. One was that I was not able to browse the bookstores that I went into. Two, um, because every, everybody that was working there was like, we need to get the fuck home after this event is over. <laughs> Two was not being able to hang with the people I love. Um, there were lots of new people, which I love. There were these big audience filled with sometimes old friends, people I hadn't seen since like high school era, people who I didn't know but that drove a few hours to come see me. And, you know, there were also people who just sort of waltzed on to the scene because they were looking through the bookstore and just stopped and stayed for the event. And that was amazing. Um, and I wanted to spend more time with everybody. But three was this podcast um, falling by the wayside, in a sense, or being sort of put kind of on a light hold. Over the past two months, um, I've had to kind of neglect it a bit to focus on the book and on the tour. Um, as you may have noticed, the episode releases have been more erratic and, you know, a lot of them have focused on the book. Um, and this has been a major deal for me. I don't know if it was major for you guys, <laughs> but it's been major for me. I started this podcast... Um, about five years ago now, um, in a sense, to be less lonely. I started because I wanted to talk with people about the ideas I was having, the things that are just sort of bouncing around in my head that couldn't really find purchase. And maybe you listen to it to feel, in a way, less lonely. And um, I also wanted to make sure that these conversations that would make me feel less lonely and there were about ideas would have um, some potency by virtue of them being kind of unstuck from time. What do I mean by that? Well, like I've always thought of every episode as its own sort of story, its own sort of artifact in a way. You know, a lot of other podcasts, the episodes are, you know, very ephemeral. And I, that's great. I listen to a lot of podcasts that have just sort of fleeting content uh, that is not really going to do anything for you in two weeks, much less five years. Um, but with this, I want to continue to offer and offer, which is why with this show, um, 
even though I do go into topical issues sometimes, I try not to dwell on them. If you haven't noticed, I don't really do episodes that are based on, oh, so-and-so has a new book or a new album out either. I'm trying, I think, to create conversations that aren't so pinned down by time. Um, because I want each one to feel like something you can pick up and listen to and give you an access point to, uh, again, sort of feeling less lonely, feeling able to engage with things that you might be thinking about that are related to the themes of the episode. And that makes them useful in a way. Um, and I, I've, I've always had also this idea of the podcast as being sort of usable, in a weird way, I think you can say like this podcast has always been kind of self-helpy, um, even though we do lots of big philosophical, political, spiritual stuff. There's a lot of self-development, spiritual development, and you know it functions that way by taking seriously the spiritual values and values of selfhood that others are working on. Rather than dismissing a lot of that as kind of woo-woo or stupid questions or questions that serious people wouldn't take on. Um, rather trying to kind of say, look, this is valid, this is important, and it deserves seriousness. Whether that's some bizarro belief that someone might have in ghosts, um, like a bizarre belief about ghosts in some way, or um, questions about uh, UFOs, or questions about uh, non-materialism, uh, about even just taking thought seriously rather than just according all the importance to material conditions. So from the completely weird to the not so weird but not taken seriously, or even like sort of big stoner questions like, you know, is the food in the refrigerator when you're not looking at it? That's actually a really interesting question. And we only ask questions like that um, a lot of times when we feel uninhibited. So that's why we call them stoner questions because people uninhibit by smoking pot. I hope that I can give seriousness to all of that. And in that way, it does kind of <laughs> function in, in a way as a self-help podcast. Ultimately, the idea is to offer something that is at once enriching for me, enriching for the guest, and enriching for the audience, and so by extension, enriching to the world. No one is left out, and none of it gets eroded by time. Um, and I focused so much on this book <laughs> as I needed to and bringing it into the world, but I found that there wasn't a lot of idea conversation going on with it. Um, you know, obviously when you write a novel like Hawk Mountain, you spend a lot of time by yourself, but also when you're planning the tour and everything, it's like you concentrate all this energy into this point. So I found my deep involvement with the show pulling away for a bit. Um, I was feeling like, okay, well, I'm offering everything I can, but I'm still distant from it. But when I was on tour, I rediscovered the kinds of conversations that I wanted because people were asking me questions. I was being surprised and inspired by the inquiries of my conversation partners, people like Sarah Grant and Andrea Lawler and Jared Middleton and so on and so on. Authors that interviewed me and questions that the audience had. I mean, why, why did I feel that way? Was it just my ego? I mean, <laughs> of course, like you like people to respond to your work, but to be frank, I've been doing all sorts of stuff 
in public for a long time. So I'm pretty good at distinguishing when my ego is getting in the way and when it's something else. I mean, mostly I kind of just do my thing. And then I look up sometimes I'm like, holy shit, people are paying attention. And I feel so flattered and grateful for the attention and the um, interaction. I don't think is really my ego. I think that there was some sort of inroads that fiction and writing a novel was offering um, to create that sort of inverse, like, oh, people are asking me questions about my idea space now, and that matters. Um, luckily, I kind of sorted out some of this before I went on the book tour for Hawk Mountain. Um, so I did that because, like, if the podcast was going to be somewhat set aside, considering what I know it offers when it's at its best, then it should be for a good reason. So I had to ask before the tour, what am I doing here? what is this novel what is this book and what is this book tour um you know flying and to the u.s doing an east coast doing a west coast flying back to dublin doing a bunch of dates here a bunch of time zones screwing up my circadian rhythms but also like just people are going through all sorts of shit right now um (laughs) what is it with this novel and this book tour Especially given that so many people who are on spiritual quests or like political quests or whatever, they often say, well, I don't really read fiction. I don't know what it's going to give me. Um, they, they wonder what, why they're doing it. What does it have to offer? So I had to think about that. Like, what does literature do in the world and how does it do it? What does fiction do? And, um, you know, I, I think there are lots of answers to that question. The first one is that you know, literature holds this place of deep spiritual intensity. It's like a bolt into, uh, you know, a bolt of, of, I don't want to say power, but like a sort of bolt of intensity. You know, you open this thing that's printed on dead plants and it's covered in symbols and it enters into the light and transforms itself and transmutes through interaction with your senses and becomes you know, images and meaning and all that. And then there's this staying power to it, the staying power to books themselves, which people keep saying, oh, that's going to go away. But people seem to really, not just seem to, people do identify with, relate to, and love engaging with this particular object and its form of strength. Um, But also, you know, it does this thing where... uh, I'm thinking here of something Jennifer Egan, the great fiction writer, the author of Visit from the Goon Squad, among other books, said that, um, you know, a novel is really an engagement with the mind of the other in a way that no other art form is. Because images in a a movie or um, the sound in music, those will lead you in a certain way. Um, they'll fill in all the blanks, but a novel, you kind of have to walk around with the person that wrote it. You have to co-create the imaginal with another person is how I interpret what she said. And that is an entering into the spirit realm. Let's co-create imaginative substance with each other. Even when we say we read fiction to escape, we're imagining a new world. We're imagining new people. Um, in that sense, it's almost a utopian effort because it's strengthening our ability to imagine. Um, 
what we can do, what is possible, something entirely new, even though it's also unfamiliar to us. And, you know, and that can also help us with our compassion. Um, And, you know, horror in particular, since Hawk Mountain is alternately framed and marketed (laughs) as horror, literary horror, literature, literary fiction, crime, literary thriller. Um, But anyway, horror has an element of the theological, the spiritual, the supernatural. Um, Though my book only skirts the supernatural, it nevertheless stays in that sort of horror register, or that thriller register. And the shock of the thriller and horror is always a shock to what's real. Um, Like, if there's a horror novel and there's a werewolf or, you know, some strange being or something weird starts happening in people's bodies or there's a a horrendous crime that's committed um, or a murder, that is always a shock to people's sense of lawfulness. And that is really necessary because we need those kinds of ruptures um, and uh, unjoinings um, to be able to think of new things in the world. To be able to um, imagine that the world could be different. And, you know, we also experience evil through horror in a way that I think is really unique um, and profound. Because art really is the only place that can contain evil in a way that allows us to look at it. To see it, engage with it, and not necessarily have the moral, (laughs) ethical um, imperative with that urgency to do something about it, but actually to implicate ourselves, to look at ourselves, all that. These are all worthwhile. I mean, I thought uh, worthwhile reasons to talk about a book, to write a book, and I thought about all of this before I went on tour, and all of it became sort of deepened and clarified by people's questions. Um, I was more able to articulate all of this by responding. But as important to all of that, Um, And more than that, I think, is according fiction and literature um, its own right, what it deserves in its own right, its own being. Um, Let me explain that a little bit too. When I uh, was going through marketing meetings with my teams for Hawk Mountain, um, they're awesome. You know, especially like these early meetings with that I was having with Norton, my publisher in the U.S. I mean, that team is just so fucking great. I love them. And and they've just done, you know, so much for me. But these early conversations were like, oh, do you want to be on, you know, this queer podcast? Do you want to talk about this? Should we write, you know, this ad copy to send to bookstores that's about toxic masculinity and this identity and all this kind of stuff? And I kept saying, no, 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 no. Like, it's not about that because that is pulling the fiction into another realm. I certainly don't mind if people sort of turn the prism of the book, the sort of dark prism of the book in one way or another. And what is refracted from that turning is, oh, I, I, I see there are themes here that I could, you know, consider that that sort of light can bounce off of me about queer identity, about masculinity, about, um, you know, whiteness and, you know, maybe the one Arab character that's in the book and all that kind of stuff and oppression and heteronormativity, all that kind of stuff. But, um, 
I resisted it being sort of purely propped up or marketed that way because I think we've spent the past few years, we've spent a long time, but the past, you know, like five or six years especially, reducing fiction to its political function or trying to fit it into a political economy. And, you know, I mean, people that are on political or spiritual missions, like they'll, they'll often try to sort of do that too, you know, like, well, how does this fit into all of this? Um, and what I think is like, that's not good for fiction. <laughs> it's also not good for politics or economics that we do that. Um, the cultural sphere if I'm going to talk about a cultural sphere, a political sphere, and an economic sphere, and we can, you know, there, there's an episode about that with um, Seth Jordan that you can look up and listen to the separation of those spheres. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to go into it right now. But just to say that, like, if there's a cultural sphere and a political rights sphere and an economic sphere, the cultural sphere is often left to beg um from the big like and submit to the political and the economic for value like we reduce anything that's cultural whether it's science or spirituality or sexuality but especially art to its function in politics and in economy and in the conjunction of those the political economy but what we need to do is insist against that at least on the primary level, at least at the base foundation of what is cultural, we need to really assist against that. Um, what do I mean by that? Art, especially good art, and that includes fiction, it has its own emotive life. It has its own thinking movements. It has its own way of taking action. It's much closer to intelligence than any computer will ever be. It's already and always been closer to life than any algorithm. Art is as close to a living being. Um, and in that cultural sphere, it deserves to be honored and assisted and engaged with for its own expressions and blessings and depth. And every time we sort of turn to it and say, well, what's the political point here? What's the political value? What kind of message are you trying to get across? for politics what's the economic value here um you know but when we reduce art to how much money it makes people always get upset but when we reduce art to what its political value is uh people are like yes that's the right way to go <laughs> but i'm going to say what what when we do that you know we're not honoring what's really there and, and we do it so much that people actually have trouble even knowing what's there what's worthwhile without simply seeing it that way. Um, I'm always happy to answer political questions <laughs> about my book and my podcast or whatever, um, but I'm always happy to answer political or even economic questions about my novel. Um, they still tend to take the form of identity or class questions in my audiences since it's mostly leftists or left of leftists or off the grid entirely is in my audience. I'm happy to answer those questions, but I have also got to refuse to feed those questions more power. They have enough already. And what needs to be strengthened in its own right is the cultural fiction. 
needs to be strengthened in its own right. I take very seriously Susan Sontag's um, thoughts on this. One is that in place of a hermeneutics, we need an erotics of art. She wrote that in Against Interpretation, and I think it's even truer now. I, although, you know, for Susan Sontag, things were not even close to being as bad as they were in terms of hermeneutics, like to contextualizing things, um, you know, in, in terms of the forces of history and material conditions um, and certain kinds of interpretation. But the other is that, you know, not just need neurotics of art, but also we is is her idea that living a serious life taking life seriously can mean engaging with good art with the ballet with a symphony um with rock music and pop music and jazz with great novels great poetry um beautiful images in painting and installation art and whatever other forms of art, that is as noble as any other pursuit. That actually gives strength and enrichment in all sorts of ways to just take seriously all of that. So I take, I, I take on board her two ideas there. So that all was going on. And so the podcast is now primarily, it's like, I see it as the way of working through these ideas that I'm kind of lonely with, of offering that way becomes a sort of idea lab where from now on, I've got to ask myself questions before I go into the podcast. So I'm not feeling like no one's asking me anything. You know, that is the ego part of all that. But I ask myself questions before I start and then I go in and we work with these ideas together and hopefully give people this sense of solidarity, compassion, care, connectivity. And the novel and the book tour, you know, has its place strengthening the cultural sphere. And then Patreon, I I know, like, this is the point where I always talk about Patreon is right before the episode starts. But actually, I just want to say, like, I'm so grateful to it. Because this is as close to the economic sphere that I want to be living with as I get. Um, you know, in other words, you offer whatever you offer through Patreon and through patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. And I really mean this not just as a sale pitch. I, I just want to say this to you guys. Like you offer through that because you value who I am and what I do. You're not paying me for my labor. You're expressing kinship and support for what you feel when you're listening or you're reading or you're engaging with me in some other way. Like, that's really profound. It means that the art and the conversations, you know, the fiction and the podcast, they don't have to get funneled into just what their economic value is. And that's really profound. I'm so grateful to Patreon for being the best at this. It's not perfect, but it is the closest we come in a society that wants or demands people be paid for their labor, which is inappropriate. No one can really be paid for their labor. Can you actually be paid for time? We should be receiving, you know, the spirit of kinship, brotherhood, siblinghood, otherhood, (laughs) based on 
you know, the fact that we all have lots to offer and we're all connected. So that is, you know, if you like the sound of that, which I do, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib is where to get involved in that. And if you are involved in that, thank you. It's really amazing. And I'm just so grateful for it. I hope that all this talk inspires you to look at your conversations and your engagements with art, especially fiction and podcasts and your economic engagement, and to try to find in them um, a fit in your life, something that can match what you find meaningful instead of giving it up to the pre-packaged value others demand it should have. Meaning. What's meaningful? Okay. Well, I've talked for a while, <laughs> and um, thanks for listening to all of this. This event, uh, which happened on July 28th, so pretty recently in Dublin with Caitlin Doty and Mark O'Connell, it is just a great event. It goes in all kinds of weird and awesome directions, and um, I'm really happy to share it with you, and there's a cool Q&A with the audience afterwards. Some of the sounds a little funky because... I just had a mic sitting in front of us, so I had to kind of amplify some of the Q&A, but whatever. You don't really care about that, do you? Like, you'll hear it. It'll be good. It'll be fun. And uh, hopefully I'll, I'll post some other live events just for patrons and stuff, mostly because this is the one I wanted to post. I don't want to keep posting book tour events as podcast episodes. Although if there's another, like, truly mind-blowing one, uh, like this one is so fun, then, you know, I Maybe I will post it in the future. Anyway, thanks uh, for being a part of all of this. And, you know, that was something I learned from the audiences on the tour. No one really acknowledges the audience when they go on book tour. But I was so thankful every day. And I'm thankful for you uh, hanging out with me, listening. And here's my episode with Caitlin Doty and Mark O'Connell in Dublin. Here we go. Um, so my name is Mark O'Connell. I'm a non-fiction writer uh, from Dublin. Um, I've been a fan for a while now of, uh, of Connor's work as a podcaster, uh, and I guess it would be fair to say a public intellectual. I mean, that's a slightly loaded... Yeah, he, he likes that. Um, I've also come to know Connor pretty well over the last couple of years, and so it's a real pleasure um, to get to introduce him tonight as both a fan and a friend. Um, <clears throat> when Connor first told me he'd written... A novel, he didn't tell me much about it, uh, other than that it was essentially a horror novel and that there was quite a lot of writing about bodies in it and that it was pretty full on. Um, anyone who's uh, read the book already, I don't know how many of you have actually dipped into it yet, uh, but anyone who has read it will know that that's uh, something of an understatement. Hawk Mountain, despite its deceptively pastoral title, is extraordinarily full on. Um, I've rarely read a work of fiction that's more merciless in its uh, pursuit of its psychological ends, uh, and at the same time, strangely humane. It's a book about the mechanisms of repression uh, and the hauntings of buried trauma, 
uh, and in its elemental brutality and uncompromising darkness, um, it has quite a lot in common with, I think, Greek tragedy, um, as it does with the horror genre, though there's a lot of that too. Um, I'm by no, by no means an expert in either of those literary realms, but when I read it, I found myself thinking of uh, two American writers I myself have had um, obsessions with over the years, um, appropriately, I suppose, unhealthy obsessions uh, at various points in my, in my reading life. Edgar Allan Poe is one and Patricia Highsmith is the other. There's something of Poe's uh, stories, The Telltale Heart, and William Wilson in Connor's book with its ruthless excavation of a murderer's guilt and self-betrayal. And there's definitely more than a hint of Highsmith in how Connor forces his readers with an unsettling combination of expert cruelty and profound humanity to sympathize with a man who has done uh, and continues to do throughout the book uh, pretty horrendous things for, I think, pretty horrendous uh, and dark reasons. It's really uh, an extraordinary book, and these uh, comparisons are, in a sense, my way of groping toward a context for something that is, I think, completely original. It wasn't the book that I expected Connor to write, but as I read it, I realized that it was a book that only he could have produced. Um, those of you who are familiar with uh, Connor from his podcast uh, won't be surprised to hear that his fiction is characterized by an energy that's equal parts intellectual and emotional, in which the distinction between those two categories, in fact, becomes increasingly blurred and maybe even meaningless. As I was reading the book, I found myself talking about it to a lot of people um, and giving them the kind of gist of its, frankly, horrifying plot. Um, and the typical reaction was, wow, that sounds pretty grim. Um, and my reaction to that reaction was always the same, uh, which is to say that it was, in fact, exhilarating. Because good art, no matter how dark its subject matter, is always exhilarating. Um, I've written about some pretty dark subject matter myself, and that's a wager that I have to kind of make every time I write a piece or start a book. Um, and speaking of writers on dark subject matters, it's hard to imagine a more appropriate or more enticing person to hear speaking with Connor this evening than uh, Caitlin Doughty. Caitlin is, I think it's fair to say, one of the most prominent and widely beloved living authorities on the topic of death and dying. Uh, as a mortician and as an activist and as the author of, I think, no less than three New York Times best-selling nonfiction books uh, and as founder of the funeral reform organization, The Order of the Good Death, Caitlin's been for quite a while now mounting a remarkable campaign to change the way we think about this most important and most unavoidable of topics. And we discussed this a little bit earlier and we decided that it is the only topic worth thinking of. Um, so I'm going to stop talking now so that we can hear two uh, great intellects, two really unique writers of respectively fiction and non-fiction uh, talking about the body and its horrors and I suppose its pleasures as well. Um, so welcome, Connor and Caitlin. Um, thank you, Mark. To be a machine is for sale back there. It is so good. Oh. It is just <laughs> so amazing. In some ways, far darker than anything Caitlin and I have ever written. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Because it's people's like real life horrible ideas of what should happen in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to start 
This is my dear, dear friend, Connor Habib. Hi. And if you have ever had one of your dear, dear friends create a work of literature or a work of art and then share it with you, you know the feeling of like, <laughs> he's a genius. He's been talking about this for years, but that does not mean that this work of this culmination of his thoughts and dreams is going to be any good at all. <laughs> and so when I read the book, I was like, yes, because it is absolutely fantastic. And the reviews that are coming out in publications in the UK, in Ireland, in the US, totally back me up on this. Mm -hmm. A lot of the reviews say that Hawk Mountain has this feeling of creeping dread or a fog of unease or just an eerie vibe. And when I was growing up, I was never much of a fan of just straight ahead, like Stephen King horror. I was more of a fan of gothic horror. And when you think of gothic horror, you often think of the castles and the ghosts and the sexy monks. <laughs> but actually, the real tenets of gothic horror are often a very similar deep unease that pervades everything and the trope of someone from the past returning. Mm. And when someone from the past returns, something about it sets everything off kilter. Mm. And even though Hawk Mountain takes place in an American beach town, I really think that it is kind of a modern gothic novel, minus the sexy monks. In the first draft, I was like, could you add some sexy monks, possibly? And he was firm, no. Uh, maybe the next book. Because this book's, book taps into our own creeping dread, and it's very similar, I think, to a lot of the creeping dread that everyone in this room has right now, and that we try to give voice to whether it's related to climate or laws or income or the economy or whatever it is, this book takes that feeling we all have daily and it ratchets it up to 10. <laughs> and part of what we're going to talk about tonight is like, is that a good thing? Is that what we should be doing? Should we be leaning into that feeling or trying to distract and stay away from it? So I think the first thing that's going to happen is Connor is going to read the first chapter. Yes, yeah, sort of. The, it's the second chapter, but it's the first Present tense chapter, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to start. Thank you, by the way. And thank you, everybody, for coming so much. And to the Fumbly and to my publisher, Penguin. And to the great photographer, Al Higgins, who took this picture of me that I turned in. It's like, it's, you could not, when you see the book, it's like, I could not have more of an author, author photo. <laughs> and I like sent it in, like I'm literally doing this. And I sent it in and I was like, are you sure that one? What about the wacky? They're like, no, this is the one. So That's the that, only way you know you're truly an author. Exactly. When that happens. Only if you can pull that off, which we'll see by the end of the night. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm going to read, when I say it's not the first chapter, the first part of the book takes place in two timelines because this is a story about two men who went to high school together and one relentlessly bullied the other. Um, Jack had relentlessly bullied Todd in high school. So there's a little, like, just sort of preview of that, and then we get into the first chapter. So I'm going to read that. My chapters are all pretty short, because that's how I like book chapters to be. And um, so this will be pretty quick, and then we're going to get into the conversation. We're going to talk a lot, 
I'm going to read a little bit more, and then we're going to open up to you guys to talk about any of the themes that we touch on here and to have some biodynamic wine. I only had wine that was made with occult processes here at the event. <laughs> so, yeah. Connor That's being a parody of himself. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. The beach had gone still except for the waves. Todd was on a towel, his son Anthony at the edge of the miles and miles of ocean and the sound of water pulling away like a dream ending. There was nobody else. The few other beachgoers were hundreds of feet from him as the afternoon ended. Their voices and stereos were covered up by the wash of surf. Anthony was six, wading up to his knees in the water, which must have been cold, too cold to swim. Todd was 33. The season was almost over. The whirring of the cicadas was dead and the gulls were still circling. Not much had happened for almost four years. After an uneventful divorce from Livia, who had let go of their marriage and custody the way an enemy might let go of your hand if you were drowning. At the end, Livia said she'd never really wanted either of them. The last time he checked, she was in Rome. But that was more than a year ago. Anthony was too young to know much about her, except that his mom had gone away somewhere, and Todd had hoped that would be that. Four months ago, Todd had gotten a job in New Granard, bought a house, and now there was just over a week before Anthony started school. Todd rubbed sand on the bottom of his feet to scrub away the dead skin. The beach was pocked with bits of wrappers and cigarette butts and every once in a while, a can. Why couldn't people keep after themselves? Down the coast, away from Todd and everyone else, there was a little flesh-colored knuckle of movement. Someone walking up the shore. Todd had spotted Anthony's first grade teacher down the beach on the way here. She, Ms. Page, would be the first teacher ever for Anthony since Todd had kept Anthony out of kindergarten. She was by herself, which seemed unlikely. He thought about asking her on a date. He hadn't been on a date with anyone since Livia and hadn't really had the desire. The whole district would have a meeting soon. He could talk to her then. Maybe it was time to ask someone out and see how it went. That was what he was supposed to do, wasn't it? Fall in love or act like it? Fall in love, he whispered, but was unconvinced. He loved his son. He loved being alone. A colony of gulls split open from the beach into the air as the stranger walked closer. Maybe he, Todd could see the stranger's bare chest now, was on his way to see Miss Page and she wasn't single after all. Well, if she wasn't, maybe there would be a conflict or he'd have to convince Miss Page to be with him. That was something that could happen, wasn't it? Maybe it would be exciting to feel what that was like. He'd forgotten what it was like to date anyone, but here was a vague idea. He asked someone to go out with you. But when? Do you have to talk first for a bit, or do you just come right out with it? And you sit there at dinner or wherever, which could mean he'd need a babysitter for Anthony, something he hadn't found since moving here. Then, if it goes well, you're supposed to have sex, something that Todd and Livia had barely done in the nearly two years they were together, and which he hadn't done since. He closed his eyes and thought about the books he'd teach this semester. When he was allowed to actually teach between the standardized testing, Lord of the Flies, which they had to read over the summer, The Catcher in the Rye, a separate piece, books about white kids that he read growing up. He liked them, but he needed to add something else. Maybe not a separate piece this year, but then what? He opened his eyes, squinting through his sun blindness, then shielding his eyes with a saluting hand on his brow. He saw that the man walking along the water was standing now by Anthony. 
Todd felt a lurch in his stomach. He didn't want to cry out yet, didn't want to display panic and make Anthony afraid of everyone who approached. But that was the way Todd felt when he saw this figure, tan, golden-haired, tall, talking to his son, menace. He watched and tried to slow his heart, go out to him, but he didn't. It wasn't like the man would just carry him away, not like he would, what, drown his son? hold him under for the pleasure of it? He had to remind himself that those things didn't happen. Mostly, they didn't happen. The man looked over his shoulder up toward Todd. He looked up for a long time as if trying to settle something. Then he started walking up the sand. The sun was behind him. The light was like a crown, so bright that it obscured his visage. Closer, Todd sat up. Closer, Anthony was standing in the distance now, looking at them both closer, closer, until he was here, standing above Todd, and it was only in the absence of the sun when the stranger's head had blocked it out completely and forced Todd into shadow that Todd could see who it was. He was different, of course, 15 years later, but unmistakable. His body had been pulled taller with time and into light muscles. The same swipe of freckles on his face was darkened by the summer, and his hair had leaned away from blonde toward light brown. His chest was smooth. His legs were sparsely covered with a rush of golden hairs. His eyes were the same color green, clear but opaque, like cracked sea glass. Jack opened his mouth to say something but stopped. The waves rolled in once more, and then he laughed. No fucking way. I knew it, he said. His voice was delighted. I, Todd couldn't speak. Jack sat down on the sand next to his towel. His bare feet were covered in coagulated sand that followed him up from the shoreline. Don't pretend you don't know, he said. He was smiling in a happy, challenging way. There was a gap, the gap between his two front teeth. They said his name at the same time. Jack, Todd said in a vulnerable tone. Jack! Jack exclaimed. I'll stop there. <laughs> so I read this Christmas time, The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. Mm. You may not have read it. It's 600 plus pages. <laughs> but I was, I was on a kick of like, I'm going to make the commitment to something here. And the, the conceit of the book is that at the very beginning, the woman in white comes into his life and everything is changed mm. from that moment. He starts on a journey. It sets something in motion that cannot be undone from that moment. And I'm really glad that you read that because that's essentially how you start your book. Mm. Some man shows up from the past and the wheels are set in motion. Why is that such an eerie trope? Like, why does that get us? Yeah, even like even when it's not eerie, it's like chaotically fucked up. Like the cat in the hat, right? <laughs> <laughs> like someone walks into a room. Like in a, in a book, you always know someone showing up is trouble. There's a lot of other examples. There's Fathers and Sons by Tregenev. There's uh, this novel called Disgrace by Jam Katsia, which is a true horror novel. I mean, it is... It is messed up by a Nobel Prize winner. Um, but someone walking into the scene, it's just bad news. And I think that um, I think that the idea is, well, one, in a novel, the appearance of someone is almost always consequential. So that's part of it. But I think the other thing is, like, we don't want the lawfulness of our lives to go away. And this is actually something that happens in horror a lot. Horror is 
I'll, I'll probably say what horror is like 10 different times tonight, and maybe you all have your own ideas as well. But horror is like a disruption of what you know of how the world works in one way or the other. And that sounds like a really theological, like, I mean, like this Christ moment or whatever moment where something ruptures what you think is real. And so even just being on the beach, but I, I want to say one more thing about it. I also think it like shows you in this case, like some performance things. So I wrote this book originally. The first thing that kind of snagged my mind was like, you know how like, okay, let's say you know someone from like Talek or something that you hate. I don't know why I picked Talek, but <laughs> but you know someone who poured silt into a beautiful field there or something like that. No, that's a Dublin news story. Sorry. Um, anyway, you, so so you know someone and you just, you just kind of like dislike them. But then like you go to like Sitges in Spain and you see them and you're like, oh my gosh, it's you. <laughs> you do this thing that like completely shocks you. And so what it does is like... It, that kind of thing, and that was the snag that like unfurled into this book. It's like that can show you that your animosities might actually be performed, but that also means that maybe your friendships are performed. And so, like, I don't know if you've ever seen those Bugs Bunny cartoons where it's like the sheepdog and the wolf, and they're chasing each other, and then they stop and they put the punch card in the clock, and they're like, how you doing, Joe? And they have, like, a cup of coffee, <laughs> and then they punch the card and they start running around again. And I think that that's also why it's like, what parts of me are real and what's performed and someone showing up again or someone just showing up anew can really force you into that reevaluation. But I think you take it one step further because huh. there's the bullying yeah. element. And to me, bullies in books are like guns in book in the sense of like if it shows right. up in the first <laughs> act, it better go off in the second act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It better give you a wedgie in the second yeah, act. Yeah, better give you a wedgie. Or it better give you a wedgie in the second act. Yeah. But if somebody is bullied really quite mercifully in the first act, like that will not go un right. revenged right. in the second act. And that's also part of the dread. I think we feel in a lot of horror. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the bully is definitely the bully. What the bully does, unfortunately we tend to sort of cast the bully as like, well, this is the person that did us wrong. But what the bully really does in later life for you is make you realize who you bullied and who you were shit to. I mean, the fact of the matter is like that, this whole like way we have of talking about that, like innocence as if there's like a pure subject who's harmed by other people. Of course, some of us are uniquely harmed by certain forces, certain people, certain institutions. I obviously um, wouldn't deny that in my own life either. However, like we're all kind of shit to each other and we've all had horrible shit happen to us. There's also nice stuff too. I'm not just, <laughs> but, um, but we've all, but we've all had that. And so like the point of the bully, I think is to show you that like you can reevaluate then. And also who was I a bully to? Cause I think a big part of this book. So one of the things with this that happens in here is that the sympathies keep shifting between the characters a lot. Like who do you, and a lot of people have reported this to me. It's like this crazy, like back and forth. Well, I like him. No, I like him. I like him. I know I like her. I like the kid, whatever. But the point being that no one in this book and maybe in life should be left um, not held accountable and also no one in life should be left unforgiven. Yeah, I, I, that, that's what good fiction writing is, is your sympathy swinging back and forth. I've noticed this more and been more angry about it recently when you watch, mm. say, like, and it doesn't even have to necessarily be teen content, just content for everyone. And the bully is just this absolutely <laughs> one-dimensional yeah. character, especially the girls. Like, when the girls come in and 
you walk by in the hall and you're like, you're a dumb slut, Janice, who everyone hates. (laughs) And your mother's terrible and your father's like a chicken farmer. And there's just no, it's just, there's, she's so, it's so like. A slutty chicken farmer's daughter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't ask me to write for you. I don't have what it takes. Yeah, Janice but, doesn't tell her what her life's like anymore. Yeah, so. we're, we're in the writer's room and bantering, and they're like, no, not that. Um, but there is, like, there's such an opportunity every time you have someone who is cruel to other people to have them be deeply nuanced. And I do think that that happens in queer fiction more than other fiction, or uh, it's, yeah. it's better at it. Um, but you have so many bullies that are just... Like, school and bullying doesn't work where someone just walks by and someone just, like, screams obscenities at you with no backstory or inner life at all. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and that is quite actually, that, that won't. That won't help ultimately end bullying or end like your own problem with the bully. So I think that that's actually the worst consequence of that kind of narrative is that it seeps into us. I mean, it's okay when it's like, you know, I mean, even even Lord of the Rings is more complicated than that. You know, I mean, even like putting on the ring is like, I'm going to be horrible now, you know, like, um, so even that is like, but like fantasy novels or whatever, I think that there is a place of showing that duality, like quite strictly, but it certainly isn't the place where you're trying to represent how we treat each other and how we sort of get through you know difficult situations and relationships well lord of the rings is the place you can do that high school is not right yeah right like, unless you go to high school in middle earth yeah yeah <laughs> so tell us about what happened in your uber yesterday i'm just i'm just sorry i'm just thinking of like the clicks, like the Hobbit clicks, you know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't go there. We could live on that forever. But I was like, I have to ask him real questions. Yeah, it's like That's Gandalf's like the for. creepy janitor. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you what happened to the Uber yesterday. Fuck. Okay, so when I got an Uber, this is so weird that we're talking about this now. It was such a bizarre experience, guys. I ordered an Uber, which apparently Uber is supposed to be illegal in Dublin. So this is a whole thing I also found out. I've taken like um, 40 Ubers yeah, since I've like, been here. Yeah, it's like dark web Uber. Yeah. So I, so I, I, got, I got an Uber and, you know, the guy has like five stars and he's just like, seems totally sweet. I get in. He turns the street. I live, you know, in a pretty quiet neighborhood, so the street is completely empty, and he's driving very slowly, and there's a seagull standing in the middle of the street, and it's like, like burp, 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 you know, like that. <laughs> and he's driving slowly, 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 slowly. And I know that he must have thought that the bird was going to fly away, but, like, at some point he made a decision. And he just kept driving, and I just heard, pop, pop. <laughs> And I looked out and there was the bloody dead carcass of the bird behind. And I, and I was like, he didn't fly away. This is all I, all I could say. I was like, wait, he didn't fly away. And the driver went, huh? <laughs> and so I, we were actually on the way to pick up Caitlin to go somewhere. And so I was just sitting in the car, in the car and I was like, what do I do? Like, do I tell this guy like, fuck off? Like, is he, can he just not acknowledge it? Because to acknowledge it is to be like culpable. Like maybe he's trying to forget it. Like, does he not feel responsible? And then I'm like, well, I eat animals. So like, why do I care about the seagull dying? Like, is that just some weird thing that I had to see it? So 
Like it was such a weird conundrum. And then I was like, also like, do I give him one star or five? <laughs> you know? Or like I actually suggested that I should just like put one star in, in the comments just a seagull emoji. <laughs> um, but like do I what do I do? Um and then uh so I think like it was just all that in my head, like that weird moment of what to do in this moment in life when this death has occurred, you know? But that, ladies and gentlemen, is horror. <laughs> uh, but, but it really is because, like, good horror is, like, the slow creep toward the seagull. And you're like, it's, uh, it's going to fly away. It's, it's going to fly away. <laughs> And then the moment that it doesn't fly away, because so much of our life, so often in our life, the seagull does fly away. Yeah. But we live with the threat that one day the seagull is not going to fly away. Totally. And that's horror. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually, you're reminding me of um, the Lars von Trier film, Melancholia. Does that Has anybody seen this movie, Melancholia? Basically, there's a bunch of people that are like... Um, you know, like, so it's, it takes place in two halves, uh, Kirsten Dunst and uh, what's the other, Charlotte Gainsbourg. And is, uh, there's a Fassbender in there, Fassbender in there somewhere. <laughs> so, like, the first half is, like, Kirsten Dunst is supposed to get married and she's so depressed that she just can't do it. In the backdrop of this, weirdly, which forms the second half of the movie, which is an, a crazy horror movie, is that this planet, Melancholia, which is much huger than Earth, is going to crash into the Earth and destroy it. But people are like, no, it won't. Like, and But there's a certain moment when they realize, fuck, yes, it's going to. And there's nowhere to go. There's no escape from the slow impending doom. And actually, interestingly, the only person who's able to handle it is Kristen Dunst because she's depressed all the time. So she's like, look, like... I can't get away from the absolute hell and horror that I live in every single day. So this is nothing to me. Like, yeah, so you can't escape. There's nowhere to go. That's what it's like to be me. So you actually learn in this weird way that depression is a survival strategy for horror, which I find really like profound in that. So now I'm thinking like, if I had been having a really bad day, maybe I could have handled the Uber driver hitting the... But no, I, I mean, it would have been bad either way because it was so shocking. <laughs> you don't want to hear a bird pop twice. Like, no. no one wants that. Once is bad enough. Speaking of, like, you said you eat animals. Yeah. I eat I don't know. I sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of horror. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was in... When I was in college, I had a class with a theater professor... And she had a, a course on like horror on the stage. And mm. what she did was that the students would show up on the first day of class and it's just, you know, big circle of chairs. And in the middle is a plugged in blender filled with water and a goldfish no. swimming in it. And it sat there for the whole 50 minute class. And at the end, the dramatic reveal is that it's it's a dead blender. It's never going to go off. But the having to sit with that fear. And again, oh. like, I eat fish sometimes. Mostly vegetarian, but I will eat fish sometimes. Like, 
goldfish isn't even that charismatic a fish. Like, you know, why do I care? So why why do we care so much? Is it yeah. is it having I mean, I think probably people who are like deep vegans would say having to face our complicity is the horror uh-huh. there. Yeah, like, first of all, I'm thinking, since it's Ireland, I'm thinking, like, if that were a Martin McDonough play, like, the theater professor would have picked it up and been, you know, talking to a, a student afterward, and then as they walked out the door, like, dropped it <laughs> and smashed. And then they would have gotten down on the floor and tried to, like, breathe into the fish. Um, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> the goldfish of Inish Boffin or something like that. Um, <laughs> But I think, like... <laughs> I laughed like I got that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you guys know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, but I think, um, yeah, why is it, why is that the horror? I mean, that's such a great question. So I was vegan for 15 years as well, but I never, I think I was one of, the, like, the, the unknown vegans, which, like, it's so unfair because everyone's like, well, if you're vegan, you'll tell people about it. I'm like, yeah, but you would never know the ones who don't tell you about it, so it's not fair. Um, I, but I, I'm not vegan anymore. I think, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's something about, um, the slaughtering of animals. It's not just the complicity. It's also like the, like the absolute erasure of like the complicity. So it's like two steps. So luckily here, I mean, there are some factory farms on the island, but in the U.S., like where we're from, it's just like, slaughter torture spectacle fest it's horrible because people think oh this comes from a family farm or whatever and even that would be unbearable to them so it's just the extra remove or something like that you talked i think you mentioned it in or you read it but you were talking last night about the things that we are given to read and experience in high school both in the u.s and in ireland and how there's actually a lot of trauma mm. and obscenity and really quite perverse things to be found in like high school literature. Mm. And I love that he is talking and thinking about your main character is thinking about yeah. how he has to teach those and how perverse those are. Yeah. And so this is something that I'd love for you guys to think about when you're um when we do the Q and A, like if you don't have a question, so we don't have to do that thing where we wait for the first person to be, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> um, is like, there is a lot in this book that's about, um, books that we read in high school. And in fact, the American version of this book, it wouldn't have tracked here. And I love the cover here because it's super dark and weird. Um, but the cover in the U.S. is a mock-up of a famous cover of The Catcher in the Rye, which is a book we all had to read in high school. And which led to people claiming that it made them want to kill uh, uh, John Lennon and Ronald Reagan and love Jodie Foster. I'm not making this up if you haven't heard the story. Um, hopefully my book will inspire teenagers. I know. Uh, same. <laughs> but, but, um, but so because of that, like, I'm thinking a lot about these books that I read in high school as Horror novels, The Catch and Rise, Separate Piece, Lord of the Flies. So because they inform my sense of tension, there's certainly a lot of sexual like stuff in them for me as a budding homosexual. Um, like like if you're in if you if you're in high school in like a small town in Pennsylvania and you read a novel like a separate piece where one boy tries the other boy's clothes on, you're like, ah! like it's so <laughs> electrifying. I'm like 
no one wants to encounter their sexuality in a way that's confusing to them, and we all do. So that's horror. That is a kind of body horror that we all go through when we're younger. But um, I'm wondering what kinds of books you guys found to be horror novels besides Peg um, <laughs> that you found to be horror novels that you had to read when you were growing up that were like really hard for you, disgusting to you, challenging to you, or maybe you hated them and you look back and you're like, whoa, I hated that, but it really got into me. So that's something just to sort of think about because that's what I was thinking about a lot when I, when I wrote this. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of body horror, like, you know, you think of like a traditional sort of like grapes of wrath, high school book. That book ends with a woman's baby dies and she has a swollen breast. Spoiler, sorry. <laughs> she has a, like, swollen breast that she she gives to a famine-stricken man. Yeah. You know, it's just like there's so much physicality in the in the starvation and deprivation of that period. And it is it's simultaneously sexual and horrifying. And that'll get in you. That'll get in your little brain. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and stay there as a reference for the rest of your life. <laughs> There's another book uh, by Steinbeck called The Pearl. Did anybody have to read that here? Mm. Where like a baby gets shot because someone thinks it's a coyote. This is like it's so crazy, the stuff that we read. It's kind of wonderful, I think, like that sort of sh don't shield kids, but like give them the horror. Like it is really important. It's actually one of the only honest things that happens in high school. You know, like the world's fucked, kids. Check it out, you know? Well, speaking of the world being fucked, um, do you think if the world feels horrible, do we need horror? Yeah, like, I mean, more than ever, I would say. Like, I think it's something that's come up a lot. Like, people ask me these, like, ethics questions about horror, which I find really interesting. And, like, the different variations of them are really interesting. And so, basically... <laughs> So my, does anybody know the podcast Weird Studies? Has that made its way to Ireland? It's a fucking great podcast. They talk about weird stuff and they study it. <laughs> so it could be anything. It's it in could the be, name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so Weird Studies. So one of the hosts, J.F. Martelli, is talking about John Carpenter on this episode, the, the horror film director. And he says this thing, which I think is really beautiful, where he says, like, you know, the hope is that we'll damn ourselves in art so that we can save ourselves in life. And I think that, like, doing horrible things in art, that it, it's the only way – art is the only place that can contain evil. It really is the only container where you can funnel it into and it can hold it. Because if it's happening in the world – you're I mean, you have to take action, you know, or you watch from afar. But if you're in it, you have to take action. There's a lot of complicated ideas of like, are you culpable? Are you responsible? All that kind of stuff. But if you see it in art, it's contained. And in fact, one of, I think some of the most horrifying art ever is when you think that it's not going to be contained. Like Bob from Twin Peaks crawling across the fucking sofa to get you. It's like, Jesus, no. Like when you think that wall is going to be broken or H.P. Lovecraft, like w w maybe we can talk about Lovecraft a little bit later. But it's like, you know, someone whose art has spilled out into what people think is real is really horrifying. And so I think that like when art actually art does this thing where it contains it. And so it's not a surprise to me that fucking evil forces want to control what happens in art constantly and say, no, 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 no. Like, don't talk about that shit there. By the way, um, I'm a Monsanto executive and I'm creating Terminator seeds, which will kill all the other plants. Like that kind of shit. Like, 
I think that we have a real opportunity to look at evil, reflect on it, feel into it, feel who we would be if we were evil, um, and engage with that kind of terror that it causes in our lives and culpability. And it's the only way to do it. I if think. I were evil. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that is, that is really why, why it's such a problem to have, to say that your characters can't be evil right or that like your especially even your main characters that they have to represent some kind of goodness and horror is almost like the one place that people are still allowed to be terrible and no one is looking at you and being like is that you connor right yeah is that really secretly you and that main character is you like no he's a serial killer you know not that's not what's happening (laughs) i think the best that you can hope for really is that like like that people just think you're a sick individual. <laughs> like I wrote a story, it's not coming out anytime soon, but I wrote a story about like someone who is eaten alive by parrots. Um, and that was like the first image of that story. Okay. I was like, okay, someone is tied and parrots are flying in and eating him. Okay. Right. But that, that's actually not the most gruesome part of that story. There's actually something far more gruesome that happens in that story. But when I wrote it, I was like, is this okay? Like I got really upset and I asked my friend who was, she's, uh, she's a screenwriter and she was, uh, in porn and she was a sex worker and she just like, so she understands a lot of my life and she just sort of sat down with me. She's like, well, this is going on in your life. This, 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 this. She's like, look at that. And maybe you can see where this is coming from. So I could almost imagine the troubles in my life kind of forming like a shape and going into a funnel and becoming this other shape of the story. And it was really cool to like, think of it that way. But you do sometimes write something. You're like, okay, like where did this come from? But you also know that that's actually an element of good writing. So does anybody write fiction here? Like sometimes seriously, a lot of times. Yeah. Okay. So like one of the best things about fiction is when you get to that place where the characters, um, the character is surprising you. Like, you shouldn't be surprised by a character. It's really weird. It's like when you have a dream and you're like, oh, this thing happened in the dream or something shocks you. Like, how the fuck does that work? It's your thoughts. Why should you be af- af- afraid or shocked or surprised by a dream? And it's so you create this kind of waking dream that's constantly surprising you. And so if you create something that also makes you feel these other feelings, like, oh, where did that come from? The parrots, you know, um, then you then you've, you're doing something right because you're chasing something that's ahead of you. Yeah, I think that's really in, we're talking about body horror and talking about both of our work. What's interesting is that I am coming from a place um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a mortician. And when I'm trying to talk about the dead body, whether in culture or in writing, I am always trying to make you feel safer around the dead body. But sometimes that safety comes with pretty intense immersion Mm. and exposure therapy. So I'm saying, you know, this is really what's happening with the body. And truly, when I really get into a description of a dead body, I often think that's some of my best stuff. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I'm trying to, I need that pen. Don't let me... (laughs) lose that pen. I stole it from his house when I say that. Um, someone was in your house. I'm you now. Um, but she was wearing time. my clothes and it was electrified. Yeah. <laughs> and my own separate piece. I'm like, I am a gay man. Okay. Um, there, but in your, in a horror writer, in a way you're trying to do the same thing, but you're trying to make people feel unsafe. 
Yeah. So it's sort of strange that here we are in our separate places and we both want to talk about a body being eaten by parrots. Right. <laughs> because that's really fascinating, but we have like completely different motives. Yeah. For what we're trying to do when someone reads that. And it just is a matter of like the lens through which the corpse being eaten by parrots or the living person being eaten by parrots goes through that determines how the reader perhaps feels at the end of it. Yeah, I love that you said that. I mean, I think it's also just like the, maybe the common ground is like, look, um, we want to show people what's real, but it's different ways of doing it. You know, and your responsibility of taking something that people treat with the sort of pre-made horror story and being like, no, no, like, can we look at this a different way? I mean, it's one of the ways that I talk about horror, another way that some people say, what is horror? You know, I say that like... There's a so Walter Benjamin is this like great philosopher, writer, intellectual, and he wrote that like basically we're always in a state of emergency and there's just rests in the state of emergency. But I think we're always in a state of horror as well, and that we have rests in the horror. So like if you go up and <laughs> if you look at the person next to you and you're like, hey, there's my friend or my mortal enemy. If you've made a bad seating choice, <laughs> I, I, you and you you look at them and you think like. There's my friend. Or you can look at them and think, wow, like their pancreas is secreting these fluids and there's ground up like flesh in their body and saliva coming off their tongue and the skull beneath the, you know, the face, all that kind of stuff. You're just like, fuck. Like it's not, it's not good. It's not good to hug someone and be like, there's a butthole on the other side of this hug. But I think like, or maybe it is. But uh, there's a hug on the other side of this puddle. But I think... <laughs> but, I th <laughs> but I think you have, like... So, so you always have a choice of engaging in the horror or deciding to take the rest. But <clears throat> with death... Like the horror story, like we're always in tune with that horror story. So we need people to sort of pull us out of it. I think with a lot of other stuff, friendships, school, um, parenting, um, you know, like all the other things that are happening in this book are all sites that need to be hor horrified. That's not the right word, but like horrorized. Yeah. So like they need to be like shocked by that to be like, no, no, don't get comfortable there. Actually, the family is fucked. The school is fucked. Relationships are fucked. Parenting is fucked. Let's actually trouble that. Whereas I think you're doing the opposite. And that's actually how we met because I was trying to sort of untrouble sex and you're trying to untrouble death and i think you know uh i think you know we both were disasters on both parts but i think <laughs> but but i think we did something and we did it yay don't you guys all feel great about yeah. those two things now <laughs> you have no anxieties about either of those things in any of your lives from little time with us yeah um i mean speaking about like the the ultimate horror so there's this this scholar that i really love that talks about how dracula is an embalmer and that the fear of Dracula is not actually of vampires, but of immortality. Yeah. And the fact that we take our dead bodies and we make them immortal through chemicals or that through technology, we are trying to make them immortal is kind of the ultimate horror. And that's why Mark's book is so absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but do you, I mean, is is sometimes living forever scarier than all that death? 
Yeah. Maybe I'll, actually, like, if you don't mind, like, saying something about that. Yeah. Like, I'll, yeah. You, no, no, actually, sorry, the fellow sorry, in the back of you that another. Yeah, uh, actually, if you don't yeah, mind yeah. saying something about that. Stand up, man. Uh, sir, you're clearly a vampire. Yeah. Um, but I, I, but I, no, I, I think like, um, I, yeah, I just want to say one thing and then maybe you have a, I'd love to actually hear about that because like something that really inspired this novel, it's not anything like it, but I was really inspired by Hereditary, you know, you know that one. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> because, that movie is a horror movie about emotional suffering because I would always watch horror movies and I'd be like, okay, yeah, like, so you're going to die. Like, I guess that's it. Like, that's what the stakes are. And, you know, for complicated, like, reasons and explanations, that doesn't scare me. And I think um, also in some ways, like, it doesn't need to scare anyone, really, if we take... The real scary thing is how do you live? Like, being alive is fucking terrifying. And what if you go on and continue to live after making bad decisions? And what if your brain gets put into Computron and you have to live for 7,000 years next to Ray Kurzweil's fucking digital dick? No one wants to do that. And with that, Mark O'Connell, I'll let you... (laughs) Um, Yeah, what was the question again? Ray Kurzweil's digital... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yes. The question was Ray Kurzweil's yeah. digital dick, yes or no? Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I should probably say a bit about what the book is about. It's a book. Yeah. It's a nonfiction book about this, um, uh, and it's like a few years old now. It's like four, five years old. Uh, but I, I wrote it about this movement known as transhumanism, which is this kind of social movement mainly based in in Silicon Valley, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, of You're welcome, people everyone. Are, yeah, <laughs> all good things. California, California loves you. Um, it's people who are like generally uh, pretty rich, and like a lot of rich people, uh, quite opposed to the idea of their own death and uh, doing stuff about it. So it's about this sort of technological quest to solve death, and it's about people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and those kind of guys who are looking for technological solutions to the problem of mortality, not just in general, but specifically their own mortality. So, yeah, there is, I mean, like, it's interesting to think about it in that way of, like, when I was writing the book, I came to sort of circle around this idea of, like, actually, the reason I wrote the book was because of my own kind of sort of bog-standard terror of mortality, (laughs) of my own mortality. So it came out of this kind of uh, weird sort of uh, kernel of sympathy in a way. Uh, not with the methodologies of these people, but with the, the, the fear that I, I think the fear of death is like the thing that impels everything, basically, in a way. It's sex and death. They're the two things, the two kind of like negative and positive forces. I think you did. Hey, we have yeah. fun over there. Yeah, you probably had a little bit more fun than, than, than I did. But uh, yeah, so, but I also kind of came to think of it in this way of like, I wrote the book out of my own sort of struggle with mortality. But the, I came to sort of see that, like, the thing that I was most afraid of was death. But also, somehow, I was even more afraid averse of to mortality. Guys. Well, no, just mortality. <laughs> Nothing is worse than death except yeah. for immortality, you know, why, except for why, not dying. Somehow. Why are the men that you talk about, and they are mostly men, it, no. it needs to be said, um, why are they such horror villains well, I don't know that they are. I mean, we, of course, actually. it's important to have yeah. sympathy for all cetera, mortal cetera. beings raging well, against the dying of yeah. the light. Yeah. It's important to have sympathy yeah. for all of our fellow humans. Yeah. But they also they also want immortality for themselves. Yeah. 
They don't necessarily yeah. want it for everyone in this room. Yeah, I mean, they sort of justify it in the way of like sort of trickle down economics, as in like, you know, rich people will, will become a more, but the technology will sort of trickle down over time. And we'll all, like, like we all have iPhones now, we'll all be able to be immortal or whatever. But it is, it's bullshit. Yeah. yeah. And I also don't, I mean, just to sort of like frame it, I don't really believe that anyone is going to be immortal, be it Peter Thiel or Connor Habib or whoever it is. Um, sorry. It's only through your novels that yeah. you can be immortal yeah. through your work. Um, so yeah, like, are they horror v- villains? Um, well, look, Teal certainly, who is, I don't know how much you guys know about this person, but he's, uh, he's kind of literally a vampire, as in he has sort of publicly dabbled with the prospect of extending his own lifespan through extracting blood from young people. And sort of circulating it through him himself. That's who runs um, your Venmo, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's Mr. PayPal. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I started by saying they're not horror movie villains, and then quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I I agree with you, and I I've never been at a book it. event, by the way, where it's, like the the author has been. The author kicked him out. Display, yeah, display. Is that your horror? Personal horror? Is yeah. that like? No, it's nice yeah. to take a break and watch you guys. A <laughs> Drink some wine. Yeah, Sorry, exactly. I, I completely <laughs> stepped across your question. No, no, no. Yeah. That's um, okay, I think we want to do questions, but I'm going to have Connor do a last reading. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Okay. So I'm going to read just a short part of part four. So part four is told from Anthony's perspective, the almost seven-year-old boy. And um, (laughs) so I had to read the audiobook for this. And um, when you read an audiobook, uh, if you fuck up a sentence, you have to start back at the beginning of a sentence. So when you write a novel, do not write paragraph-long sentences in any of your sections, like some Javier Marias maniac. (laughs) So this section takes place just after Todd has hit Anthony um, for the first time. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to read a little bit of that, and then we'll do Q&A. And I think... For Q&A, like this is being recorded, so just if you don't, uh, I, I might, I don't think this will actually even pick up your voice, so we might repeat your question, but if you're really worried, just be like, just say, my name is Sheila, and we will n- make sure you're not in it, okay? Unless your name is Sheila, and which, <laughs> or you're one of the Sheilas, yeah, all right. He doesn't remember his dad hitting him in his bed the night before. Remember is not the right word, because most of his memory has been swallowed, like an egg swallowed by a snake. The shape of it is becoming him. So it's more like anger, a feeling where the image would be, more like too many currents running through to sort it out. Once he tied his shoelaces into a knot so tight that his dad had to cut them open with scissors, that's a memory. Red shoelaces on a shoe off his foot. He had tied the laces again and again, but his dad wasn't proud that he could finally tie his shoes. Then came the scissors and the sky is thickening with dark clouds. There hasn't been a storm in a while, but there's a rumble from near the beach." 
He plays hide-and-go-seek, but there's no one to hide from since there's no one to play with. But he imagines Jack, Uncle Jack, trying to seek him out. And there's not many places to hide in the backyard, except up a tree he's still afraid to climb, or deeper into the woods where he doesn't want to go yet. He crouches behind the legs of the grill, but he knows that's stupid, knows he could be found, except that he won't be, since there's no one to find him. There's a memory like this, at the old house empty, the floors wide open, light filling it. Daddy, he said, Dad, Dad, let's play hide-and-go-seek, because he knew that with the broom closet cleaned and the rest of their world in stacks of boxes that he could shuffle into it and hide standing. So Daddy closed his eyes and said, One, two, and Anthony said, No peeking, and Dad counted three, four, and he ran past stacked boxes into the kitchen and opened the door slowly so it wouldn't creak the way it creaked when flung open, and got inside and was contained so that he stood straight up with no way to move in the total darkness. He could barely bend his arms. And from the world outside, he heard, ready or not, here I come. He couldn't help himself. He laughed a little because he would never be found in this dark, thin place. There were footsteps. There was his dad's voice saying, I'm going to find you, saying, are you under the table? Saying, are you in the cupboards? There was a sound of cupboards opening, but not the broom closet. That is the memory, the dark place with his father outside, and neither of them could see each other. He doesn't remember that his father couldn't find him, never thought to check the broom closet. He doesn't know that there was and would always be one black rectangle of negative space that never enters anyone's mind, and that this time it was the broom closet in the empty house that he stood in. And there's no memory that he stood there for 20 minutes in the pitch dark, unsure of what to do until his father called out frantically, Anthony, where are you? Anthony, come out right now now, Anthony, Anthony. He doesn't remember being sure that he would be found and at the same time sure that he wouldn't be found because memory isn't really like a snake swallowing an egg. It's like a leaf unraveling its surface to the sun for the first time. Well, this place is different, way out in the open, covered only by the grill's thin legs and the fact that he is alone because Uncle Jack was not his uncle and the woman who said she was his mom was his mommy or not his mommy and also she was gone. Like Uncle Jack, he's not sure where but is unraveling in him and his daddy is in the house and he doesn't want to be around his daddy right now anyway. He feels along the side of the grill leg to where the mud wasp has built his bubble like a stone with its babies inside. He knew not to touch it because that was a lesson from nature. If you reach out, you might get stung or bitten or scratched like the dog that lunged to bite him. He wouldn't remember that dog, only the dogs are angry. Or Uncle Jack picking him up and Daddy getting mad about it. He wouldn't remember that exactly. And where is Uncle Jack, he wonders again. And the answer moves like the sun is moving behind the clouds. And some of the clouds are heavy and troubled gray, so the leaves would be opening up to nothing now, and the sun is not really moving, and the answer is unraveling, but not unraveling in him. It's opening, because memory isn't like a leaf unraveling its surface to the sun that's not there. Memory is like awareness of death, a flower opening, and just as it unfolds, it is about to die itself. Thanks. Do we have any questions? Yes. Sheila. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, so, so two things just to repeat in case um, it didn't pick up here. So one is about the unknowingness. Like did the guy who's driving the car actually sort of kind of hit the seagull out of some impulse or, and, and Caitlin and I actually had one of our first conversations about this. 
Um, the subtitle of that episode of my podcast is called Death is Your Project. Now, in Caitlin's version of that, it, there's a double meaning. There's lots of Caitlin's versions of that. But one version is prepare for it. Get ready for it. Know, know what's going to happen. Here's your checklist of things to do. Have open conversations about it. But what I was referring to was Adam Phillips, the psychoanalyst, his concept that every move we take, another psychoanalyst like Georg Grodek, every move we take is leading us a step closer to death. And all our unknowing, unconscious movements are actually our death impelling us forward to it and the way we die. So it is just a fucking crazy concept to grapple with that right now we're planning something that will undo this incarnation. Um and uh, you can pick that up. In, in, uh, let me just say the second part, and then you can pick that up. So the second part is about the tropes and horror. And don't people who are in vampire movies, have they never heard about vampires? Like, what? <laughs> what's the problem? It was a man, and I never saw him in the daytime. And I woke up with a bite on my neck. Like, what the fuck? What universe do you live in? Um, I mean, I think for me, then, that kind of horror... You know, um, another episode of my podcast I did with the great writer Kelly Link and uh, another great writer, Jody Rosenberg, is subtitled A Vampire is a Theory. Because I think all these kinds of horror, vampires, werewolves, zombies, they all present sort of theoretical tricks that you have to work your way around and move around. So I think sometimes it's okay to withhold the knowledge from the characters to put them in a world of a certain kind of theory where a theory is working itself out and people have to accord their actions to that theory. In my book, um, yeah, there's nothing quite so – I mean, just the, the reader is – what I've heard from people is that they're surprised. So that means that that's not in there. You know, that means that, yes, they're engaging with all these kinds of horrors that are already there. And actually, maybe something even more horrific will occur and occur and occur. And it does. I mean, there's a really violent thing that happens sort of – a third of the way through, but it just gets worse after that. <laughs> like that's actually the easiest part in some ways. It just gets worse and worse and worse. So, um, yeah, yes. I, yeah. <laughs> Did you want to say anything about that? Okay. Going off your, your vampire question. One of the best tweets of the last three years is <laughs> to quote, to quote a great Twitter. Um, to quote Christy Alley talking about <laughs> Stephen Hawking's death. Um, you did a uh, nice try. <laughs> uh, you gave it. You gave it your all. Good try. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, okay. Sorry. It was something. Like, well, I can't beat that. Um, it was something like I don't understand what H.P. Lovecraft's deal was. Like, if I saw like a, a eldritch horror, I just would have comprehended it. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this is what I look at it. Um, but I actually really love what you said because when we got in the car, first of all, he like just showed me, he couldn't like tell me like, we just, this man just ran over a seagull. So we like sort of texted it to me. But when we finally got out of the car, he was, his first thing you said was just like, why didn't he honk? <laughs> why didn't he tootle the horn yeah, a little totally. bit? And so your interpretation of going slow wasn't to let the seagull free but was to sneak up on the seagull <laughs> in order to see it, to, to not know it was coming is very creepy. And I like how you think. Yeah. <laughs> like Just to hear that unique double pop. Yeah. You can only get it one way. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. His, that's yeah. That's his vampire blood. Yeah. 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 Can you stop? 
The seagulls. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we have not. We have not done the story from the seagulls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, I did actually. Uh, I did. I was like, do you think the seagull was injured? You yeah. know, was there something about like where the seagull was that that it was yeah. like, take me, Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> it was spread seagull. No, it was uh, just in the road. No, uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, he was like, no, it was a fine seagull. It was fine. It was just doing. It's like he just wanted to eat some delicious trash. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was like living his life. Anyway, and then all of a sudden, here's. Yeah, totally. It's too late. It's too late. And it wasn't like a hybrid that could sneak up very quietly either. <laughs> so maybe the seagull did want something there. What a um, rich experience it gave us. This <laughs> oh, it was awful. Okay, another question. Um, hi, yes, here. Yeah, um, just I was very interested about the concept of immortality. And it made me think of like depiction of immortality in fiction is nearly always negative. Like, I'm thinking of like, I don't know, I don't know, either of you have seen like Dr. Who. There's this character, and she's called Cassandra. She's really stretched skin. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. And she has to be constantly moisturized. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> she's always like, moisturizing, moisturizing. And maybe it's Maybelline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she meets the doctor and she's like, I'm the last human alive. The Yeah, of immortality are often bad because I think immortality would be bad. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, I talk about this all the time, but the meaning of life is that it ends. Yeah. And most of the things, like, for example, tonight you all made the Herculean effort to come here. And I, I mean, I, I'm not being sarcastic. Like, you have to change how you usually do things. You have to get yourself here, but you know, there's something in it for you. And you know that your life is short, like somewhere, even if that wasn't your impulse at the very core of you somewhere, you know that this may be the only time you ever see me or you ever see Connor or you ever see this particular conversation and something in you pinged. And you said, that's worth it for me. But if you were a mortal, if I told you, ah, 700 years for everyone, or like forever for everyone. Would you come out here tonight? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's the right yeah. answer. <laughs> <laughs> stupid question, stupid answer. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think I think the like one of the. I mean, I won't go too deep into this, but if you, as like a huge percentage of people in the world do accept reincarnation as true, then you do have immortality, actually. But the thing that's not immortal is the form. And so the form is the thing that is actually to preserve that form is fucking horror. So that's actually a form of body horror. So people can take, I die and then I have a life between death and the next life. And then I'm reborn and I have a new body. And there's this kind of progressive, weird shifting of all the stuff. That's okay. Cause maybe there is a limited amount of stuff on the planet. You know, James Lovelock, the great visionary scientist just died yesterday. And, um, Jim was a huge influence on my life, but his idea of Gaia was that the earth regulated like an organism, right? And so you have all these forces moving and shifting plate tectonics and new species coming up sort of from the same shit. You know what I mean? It's just like there's a flat line that turns into different curves and different forms. And that's great. It's actually the form staying the same. That is truly horrific. Whether it's a vampire or like a computer genie, you know what I mean? That like wants you to get an app or something like that. But like, I think, I think it's that. I think we can't tolerate this. Um, and I don't, I mean, I need to think more about that, but I think that that's part of the negativity because reincarnation is beautiful. Like for, for, for me, it's a beautiful concept and actually very moral, um, 
an ethical way to look at the world in certain ways. So I don't know, but it's the form for me. Well, that's the power of like regeneration. Yeah. It's like of shit becomes other shit. But yeah. when you're like, no, this is my shit forever. Right. This shit is oh, this yeah. shit for thousands of years. It becomes totally. immoral and uncanny and strange. Yeah. That's a pure kind of materialism. That's really disgusting. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah. Just to say, first of all, your question about what was in literature. Oh, yeah. The Bible. The Bible. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good one. Do you know what I mean? Right now, to us, when we were captivated. Yeah. The slaughter of Israel, the detail of the crucifixion, and, you know, like, and the Old Testament stuff. Like, wow. Yeah. That also was like a real head because there was, like, the New Testament with this lovely hippie saying, just be as mind as he can be. <laughs> and like we're all, you know, and we're all bullies, like he was with that same class of right. And then it's like, oh, but that's also this same God who's like, I love you and I'm your loving father. Right. And if you disagree, I'm going to bash your head against the rocks. Yeah. Or maybe watch as I do that to your eldest child. Or, you know, yeah. I was always like, how did these two, anyway, that, you could see the New Testament as like the Old Testament gaslighting you, basically. But <laughs> 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 that was like the main source of all the like really gruesome stuff. Yeah. I, like, I have a question about, because like, you mentioned Lord of the Flies. Um, I read this article that said the event that inspired Lord of the Flies was a bunch of schoolboys that got stranded on an island. Hmm. The truth of that story was they really looked after. Well, it was just interesting to me because, like, this the author of this article that I read said, Golding was like an untreated alcoholic that got worse and worse and worse as his life went uh. on. And so he imposed this incredibly dark view of human nature, mm-hmm. which was his own human nature being corrupted by his addiction. And that actually, the truth is that all human nature is much warmer than that. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, have you ever read something mm. that you went? I don't believe people are that dark. For me, it was the moment in Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, mm-hmm. where a woman gives birth and then she and two men you know, mm-hmm. cook the baby and eat it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I just can't <laughs> believe that, first of all, it doesn't make sense because it would take so much more nourishment to that baby. <laughs> right. But I just don't believe human. Yeah. I've tried to point <laughs> Because I went, I don't believe the darkness of that view of human nature. I see. Have you ever read stuff like that where you went too dark or... Where I couldn't believe it. You know, what's really interesting is like the, it's, so the question is, in case this didn't pick it up, do you want to like rephrase the question, which was like... Well, I think we were talking about like a book like Lord of the Flies. Actually, those boys took care. Then the real story, those boys took care of each other. And so have we ever read anything that we just believe that's actually too dark. That's too negative. You've taken something that human nature would have regulated in some way and made it. Yeah. 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 Um, The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. I I mean, it's horseshit. First of all, evolutionary. I mean, I studied evolutionary biology in in grad school and it's not, nobody actually, no scientists really accept that theory anymore, but it's so popularized that somehow there's cost benefit analysis happening in our DNA. What a weird capitalist, like nonsense kind of thing to say, but because it had such a counter effect to the book that you're afraid of, which is the Bible, people were really excited about that because they were like, well, and, and Dawkins in general and that kind of evolutionary psychology in general. But I think, that that idea is patently like 
it, it's just, I mean, it's incorrect to nize the most scientists now. But I also think, like, kind of when I would watch The Walking Dead, do you remember that series? And I was like, today in The Walking Dead, someone's arm gets cut off and it's used to bludgeon a puppy to death that they throw into a river full of eyeballs. Like, it was just, there was nothing redeeming or nothing, like, opening up in that at all. Now, my book is extremely dark, though. <laughs> it's, it's really unrelenting, but it's, it comes from a, a darkness that relates to um, compassion, culpability, you know, just sort of what it's like to be human and the difficulties of being human. And I think that whenever I encounter something where the writer has no compassion for their characters, unless it's absolutely brilliant, like um, like Flowers of Evil is a good one, or Maldor are these like old, like evil books, um, and they're absolutely brilliant, I can't get on board because I'm like, well, why did you do this? Like, if this isn't to sort of open something in the human heart, even if it feels terrible, then you're just giving me the comet that's going to destroy the earth. And I don't care about that. I don't care about that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would we even do anything if that kind of nihilism was tr were true? Yeah, the only thing I feel that way about is Twitter. <laughs> I don't. I, that's why I can't really be on it anymore, except for fun Lovecraft tweets. But yeah. I, I really think that humans, something about it has twisted the purity of human interaction in a way that that casts yeah. it in a different way that is not how humans actually interact. Mm -hmm. And so we lose the way that, you know, if, if, if everyone on the island was in individual Twitter pods, it would end very differently than if all the boys are just on the island taking care of each other. Yeah. Um, I think we can do probably we have time for one more. Yeah. You want to do one more? Yeah. So we'll do, we'll do one more and then um, we're going to, don't worry if you still have a question, you can always ask us as we sign the books and after you've had a cult wine in the back. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, um, right up here, yeah. So you originally started with the idea of constructing a horror and how it's a bit of a balance. Um, and you give two examples of a horror, one which you're writing with the flesh-eating parrots, <laughs> I see as on the like, seesaw of it, obscenity. So it's mm. unrelatable. The other side I see is relatable. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, was the choice of choosing bullying as a theme to uh, make it a relatable theme that forces the reader to confront something relatable along with your protagonist or whatever you would call a horror um, yeah. protagonist? So things that happen in this book are a lot more um, gruesome than bullying. Um, really horrific. Although in some ways... That the bullying actually is kind of the worst thing that happens in a weird way. Um, I cannot, I'm going to answer this question in a really sideways manner. Um, so a lot of people who write books, who write novels, like say they want to tell you what it's like to grow up as a homosexual in small town Pennsylvania, something where I grew up. I, obviously, I'm talking about me. Um, but when they write about that, they're like, I'm going to write a book about a homosexual growing up in small town Pennsylvania and all the things that happened to them. And they want you to relate to like the character and see what happens to the character. But in some ways, I always find, like, there are a lot of books like that that I love. But in some ways, there's a foregone conclusion that the reader is already on your side. What I would rather do, and what I think I've done with this book, is, you know, because I grew up that way, that doesn't happen in this book. It's not about a gay kid growing up and having trials and tribulations, although someone is bullied and called, you know, all sorts of names. Um, 
I want the reader to feel what it's like to experience that in life without having experienced it themselves, or if they have experienced themselves to relate to it. So I want the shock of the experience to be felt by the reader, not because they relate, but because it evokes the actual feeling. And so all the horrible things that happen in this book about touching or not touching someone's body, about violence, about the exasperated, almost like, uh, yes, yeah, sort of, I don't, even like as horrible as it sounds, the erotic nature of violence, um, of the feeling that you get of being grotesque uh, and, and grossed out by the thing that you're seeing. All of that is feeling are feelings that you have when you grow up that way in that kind of context. Um, whereas just an outsider in general, and I'm not saying that I just expect everyone in Caitlin, my audience, to be outsiders, but let's face it, guys. <laughs> um, so of having that experience, uh, that shock. And so I think, although I can't necessarily answer where the bullying came from, because it's like these things, again, you kind of chase them down. They're ahead of you, I think, when you're doing your best. It is um, definitely more of a, let me give you the experience through not showing it. Um, so, yeah. And that, so that's my answer to your question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. We are now going to do Connor and I are both and Mark are going to be signing. Um, I think they've done more than enough on their own, but if they haven't, Mark's book and Connor's book are both just absolute bangers and you will read them both this weekend if you purchase them so please do thank you for coming thank you, everybody. Everybody. Thank you.